1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, this is David Kunzman, a host of the New Books Network. Today we'll be talking with James F. McGrath, the Clarence L. Goodwin Chair in New Testament of Language and Literature at Butler University. He is the author of John's Apologetic Christiology, The One and Only True God, and Theology and Science Fiction. And today we'll be talking about his recently published book, in 2021, What Jesus Learned From Women. So we, we usually like to start off these interviews by asking our guest, um, basically just their general background and how do they come to write their current work. So, James, how did you come to write What Jesus Learned From
1: Women? Thank, well, thanks for starting me off with a question that really gives me a chance to contextualize uh, the book. Uh, I tried to make the title... Somewhat provocative, although we'll presumably get into some of the reasons why, whether it's pr- really provocative or seems like it could be self evident, even if someone's never thought about it before, really depends on where one's coming uh, to the person of Jesus from and what they assume about him. Mm-hmm. But to back up and to talk a bit about ha- what led me here, uh, I got into uh, religious studies by way of. Uh, seeking to explore my own uh, beliefs, both those of my upbringing and some that I encountered later in my teens, uh, trying to figure out what I think about big questions related to religion. And as I worked through that, and as I was looking for a doctoral dissertation topic, the question of how Christian beliefs about Jesus developed became important to me, uh, partly because I spent some time in my teens in a conservative sort of context that really discouraged you from thinking that Christian beliefs about Jesus did develop, right? That they might have gone from viewing him as anything less than the second person of the Trinity to uh, later coming to see him as fully divine. Uh, And so exploring the historical evidence for how these ideas developed was pretty central to my doctoral work. And from there, I continued to explore some of those topics, but eventually moved much more from the development of Christian beliefs about Jesus back towards the point of origin of those beliefs and matters related to the historical Jesus. And so when you put that general background together with my current current work teaching at Butler University in Indianapolis. The most immediate prompt was talking with a student and brainstorming with a student who wanted to explore in an honors thesis the question of whether it was possible for her to be a Christian and a feminist at the same time. And since I'm a New Testament person, I started thinking about possible topics. And since quite a few people have tackled the question of whether women learn from Jesus, I did what I sometimes do and flipped that on its head and said, what if you looked at what Jesus might have learned from women? And she was not at all interested in doing an honors thesis on that subject. And so I put that aside, but found myself continuing to think about it and thinking, you know, maybe that would be worth digging into. And so that's, that's really the the path that led me from where I started in New Testament study to, uh, this recent book that we're talking about, uh, in a, in a nutshell, as it were. So I guess getting into
0: the book before the beginning of each chapter, you have, uh, a little historical fiction that you've written. Uh, what was the process of, I guess, constructing that, uh, that uh, the, the first part of each chapter
1: yeah well I have dabbled in some fiction writing one of the courses I teach is on the intersection of religion and science fiction and so I ended up dabbling in writing some short science fiction and things like that Uh, enjoyed doing that when I was younger, but hadn't done much of it until I, I revived that interest of mine relatively recently. And as I was working on the book, there were a lot of details that I wanted to dig into, but I also really wanted this book to be accessible to a general audience. And as I thought about it, the two main options that presented themselves, one was to skimp on the details or stick everything that academics are interested in into footnotes and hide that from view, in which case it really is likely to become a book that neither academics find satisfactory nor really speaks at the level of a general audience. And so was not happy with that option and so quickly moved towards thinking of ways to introduce chapters that get into some details, which one can skim through if they're not interested in all those details, with with something that was more accessible. And I settled on trying to tell the stories, and then quickly moved towards thinking that it would be great to try to tell these stories of these encounters between Jesus and various women from the woman's perspective. And I thought that the effort to do that might help me as I thought through these stories, I want to add very quickly that I sought a lot of feedback from uh, female scholars, female friends, women that I know through other contexts, in order to get feedback as a man trying to write these things so that I don't make a complete and utter mess of it. And the feedback that I got was very helpful, but also very encouraging. As I worked on those parts of the chapters, what I discovered is that it didn't just serve as a way of taking my historical conclusions and presenting them in a narrative format. It actually ended up testing the conclusions that I was drawing because there were moments when I tried to tell the story based on what I understood to be going on and I bumped up against issues. It just was very hard to tell the story that way. And that made me revisit my conclusions right? If this doesn't sound like a plausible encounter when you spell it out and fill in the the dialogue in greater detail, fill in characters' motives, then that might be an indication that something is wrong with how we're understanding the story. And so there there were several occasions when the effort to tell the story actually sent me back to my conclusions to revisit them, or got me thinking about possibilities in new ways. And so I'm I've gone from recommending this as a way of conveying scholarly content to a general audience. I think it is worth doing just for that in and of itself. But I recommend trying to tell the story as a narrative to fellow scholars who work on history, because I think it really does put our ideas, our conclusions to a level of rigorous testing that they're not subjected to when they're just statements of hypothesis or possibility or a list of possible facts. So I think it's, it's, it works both as a method and as a means of communication.
0: And which narrative did you find the most challenging to write? And uh, which one uh, did you find your conclusions the most surprising after you were done with them?
1: And is that second question about just the chapter as a whole or really the the telling of the story? Uh, The telling of the narrative. Yeah. Uh, The one that was the most challenging, um, both in terms of figuring out what I thought, but also at at an emotional level, was the story of a woman who's often labeled, when people talk about the biblical text, uh, the woman caught in the act of adultery. And even that labeling of the story, that title that you'll sometimes get at the top of the page in a Bible or something like that, frames our understanding of the story in a certain way. And yet it's the woman's accusers who say that she was caught in the very act of adultery. And yet they only bring her and they don't bring a man to be judged as well. And so... There seems to be something wrong with the picture. If this woman was caught in the act of adultery, because no one—please um, tell, tell me if I'm wrong—but no one can commit adultery on their own. And so that got me thinking. But as I dug into the details of the story and what we what we know about you know bits and pieces of you know characters, of backdrop, of other things, I realized we actually have a lot more to go on in interpreting the story than we sometimes assume. And one of the surprising conclusions that uh, my research led me to was that this is a woman who would have been probably a a betrothed virgin, right? They they brought uh, her to, when it says they brought her to Jesus, it was the Pharisees who did so. Uh, They brought her to Jesus in the temple precincts, which means that they were genuinely asking for his input. And this was not, you know, we're about to stone her, but let's, let, let's see if you go along with this or some of the, the terribly anti-Semitic readings that you get um, sometimes in churches. The Pharisees were famous for trying to avoid the death penalty. And so there probably was, you know, that at work more than anything else. And the question was, you know, we have this difficult case for some reason. Why it was difficult, they didn't share explicitly because they did want to test Jesus' ability to interpret the situation and the law. But they're testing him to see whether he can find a solution that doesn't involve putting this woman to death. And so there's clearly much more to the story, much more of the background than we're given. And yet they don't give Jesus the pieces to the puzzle. And then we as readers are left with that same conundrum. And so it, it becomes sort of a it story. But realizing that this was an underage woman, uh, and so that you know, from our perspective, whether you know, it was an act of, of violence or uh, you know, in theoretically consensual or whatever it was, from our perspective, it would at the very least be statutory rape, right? And so viewing this woman in that way really changed my way of thinking about the story. And I found myself wrestling with, among other things, Why does Jesus say towards the end, right, according to the version of the story that we have in the Gospel of John, or at least in some manuscripts of the Gospel of John, uh, go and sin no more, right? Was he he not persuaded that she was an unwilling victim? Was he just saying that according to the law, if you don't cry out and you live in the city, then you will be judged guilty and you'll be considered guilty? And so cry out the community has now been sort of made aware of the situation and you're going to need to rely on them. Wrestled with so many aspects of this, but the the fact that this woman's story was so tragic and yet she's been treated as, as a criminal essentially. And so I found myself really just emotionally wrapped up in this woman's story in a way that I had never been and felt myself really judged as a reader of the story in the past, uh, having missed so much because for the typical reader, it's all about Jesus and what he does and how clever it might be. And the woman who's at the center of the story often doesn't get the attention that she deserves. And when we shift our attention, and I found this to be true in chapter after chapter, as we shift our attention to the woman who is a key player in the story, we actually understand the story better, and we understand Jesus better as a result. And so we're missing a lot even if our primary interest happens to be in Jesus and not just in the history in general. In terms of the one that, um, and I'm trying to remember exactly how you worded the question, but in terms of the one that, you know, quickly made sense to me in a a sense and really, you know, worked rather immediately uh, was the, the story that we get in the gospel of Luke about two sisters, Mary and Martha. And, It was one of the first chapters that I worked on after an initial few where it seemed clear early on that Jesus might have learned something from the female character in the story. It was rereading this one that I realized that it's not Jesus who takes the initiative in inviting Mary or women in general to become his students, his disciples. It's Mary in this story who does that. And when Martha objects that she should be helping, that Mary should be helping with the normal female duties, Jesus doesn't say, Martha, you know my teaching. You should be sitting at my feet too and listening. Leave the other stuff. He says, Mary has chosen the better portion and I'm not going to take it away from her,
0: right?
1: And so as we see women learning from Jesus in later stories and Jesus, um, in the Jesus movement later on, women taking a leading role, this moment is a, a pivotal one. And yet I found myself also struck by the character of Martha, the uh, presumably older sister, who I don't think left it at that. And I think probably pointed out to Jesus that if women are allowed to study, allowed to do things that often they weren't given the opportunity to do in this time and place, but they're still doing all of the traditional things that women do, that men don't do, and men don't help with those things, then it's just going to mean that women are liberated in some senses and exhausted and um, imposed upon in others. And so I think that that probably influenced Jesus' teaching about uh, becoming a servant. And one story that suddenly took on a new light, as I thought further about that, was the one where as they're preparing for the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples to go and look for a man carrying a, a water jug. Like so basically has gone to the well to fetch water. And that was something that, you know, sometimes slaves did, but generally, whether it was slaves or free people, it was, it was women who did that work. And sometimes people have said, well, this is an unusual thing, and so it would be a sign, and it was predetermined, and whatever. But maybe Jesus just sent his disciples to go look for somebody who was following. His teaching, his teaching as it was influenced by these two sisters, and so that's another chapter that really made an impact on me. But uh, not not in the same kind of way that I you know was heart wrenching as in the case of that that woman who was in danger of being executed uh, for a situation that uh, was was messy and complicated in ways that readers often miss.
0: So I guess focusing on focusing on uh, women in leadership, you really honed down on this in the chapter on Mary Magdalene. But just to introduce Mary Magdalene, uh, I know there's a lot of folklore around her supposed relationship with Jesus. Uh, well, uh, could you just please introduce us to who Mary Magdalene was and what information? What historical information can we glean from the
1: various uh, so- sources that we have. Yeah, thanks. That's a great question and a great way of putting it. Uh, there's a lot of folklore. Uh, there are also you know, uh, rock operas like uh, Jesus Christ Superstar and things like that that depict Mary Magdalene uh, both as uh, a prostitute, former prostitute, and as the love interest in the Jesus story. And none of that has any basis in our ancient sources. Uh, That idea emerges mostly from people identifying, and one pope in particular in a sermon, uh, we can actually trace it back to a precise precise point of origin, identifying Mary Magdalene with somebody else in another story who is not said to be Mary Magdalene. And what we're actually told in the New Testament Gospels is, really rather little. Uh, We're told that she was among the supporters of Jesus' movement. We're told that Jesus had freed her from seven demons. And that detail sometimes is construed in ways that cast aspersions on Mary, because the notion of being afflicted by demons is not one that is very familiar to people. But if it is in our time, it's mostly by way of like The Exorcist or uh, horror movies or things of that sort. But people in this time attributed every sort of ailment you can imagine, more or less, to demons, to malevolent spirits, to things like that. They had no knowledge of of bacteria, of viruses, of things of that sort. And so we have a story, uh, and I talk a little bit about this one in the book as well, about a woman who is bent over, clearly has some sort of spinal issue. And the story says that she's afflicted by a demon. And so when it says that Mary Magdalene was freed from seven demons, it means that she had either multiple symptoms, multiple afflictions, or something, you know one illness or condition that was very severe. And so it's not casting aspersions on her at all. It's just indicative of sort of the the healing power that's supposed to be at work in in the person of Jesus. And that's why that detail is in there. But the other thing that we're told about her, right, uh, she certainly does in the Gospel of John serve a key role in being the first to encounter the risen Jesus and then bring the news to others. But in post-New Testament texts, we then get her as an authority figure. And that's mostly in Gnostic texts. And even in those, the focus is not on her as... Jesus' love interest or reformed sinner or anything like that. She's simply someone who is viewed as having been close to Jesus. And I think Mary Magdalene's important to explore historically, not least because the tendency is to make her into either you know, wife or lover or prostitute, former prostitute, whatever, and to pigeonhole her into precisely those categories into which women were pigeonholed in first century mediterranean cultures whereas it seems that she was actually Jesus friend and there was a there was some sort of relationship there that was not into one of those categories and we see the influence of that in the fact that room was made in some strands of christianity in later ta- in subsequent centuries not all of them but in some of them for women to renounce Becoming a wife or mother, engaging in sexual intercourse in any of the the, the manners that the society uh, allowed or uh, made room for, which freed the women in that con- cultural context to to be leaders, right uh, in a monastic setting in certain contexts, but sometimes as teachers and leaders in the church more generally in others. And we know about that from literature outside of the New Testament, but we also know from that same from that same and other literature about other strands of Christianity that uh, were not so favorable to women in leadership. And so Mary Magdalene, I think just the fact that we're told so little about her, but that what we're told does not correspond to this folklore is actually what makes her significant. And the role that she plays in some of this literature is so significant. I guess just
0: focusing more on uh, women in leadership, uh, and I guess going from Jesus to Paul, um, do you think Paul is do, do do you think Paul maybe learns the same lessons or inherits the same lessons that Jesus does from women, or do you think he reverts back to some sort of patriarchal norms?
1: Yeah, great question. And answering that really depends on whether one views certain texts in the New Testament that are attributed to Paul as authentic or not. Uh, some like uh, those are known as the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Uh, those letters emphasize women's uh, submission. There's even one point where one of them says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Uh, even those texts, I think, can be interpreted in other ways if one wishes to. Because that same text, uh, that same uh, letter to Timothy says, "Yeah, you know, a woman should learn," and so it may be saying that you know women should not be quickly elevated into positions of leadership when women have been denied education, right? And so don't jump straight there as though be, becoming part of the church means that you're immediately ready to teach without any training. Women should learn, right? But possibly leaving the room, leaving room for a change of situation later on. And so that's still a possible interpretation. But if we take the majority scholarly view that some of those texts are not actually from Paul and just focus on the ones that scholars agree are, are by Paul, then we have texts like Paul's letter to the Romans where Phoebe, who is a deacon, a leader in the church in Cancrea which was the port city near Corinth, uh, one of the major churches that Paul founded. She's, not just a leader in her home church, but she's also Paul's emissary bringing his letter to Rome. And so he, she is Paul's representative. Uh, her. She is his apostle, you could say, right? Because apostle just means an emissary, somebody who's sent to represent someone else. And in that final chapter of Romans, he not only commends Phoebe to the church in Rome, but also sends greetings to a whole array of other individuals, including a lot of women, who are described in ways that indicates that they too are leaders in the Christian movement in various capacities. Right There's Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila, who are always mentioned together, a husband and wife team, but she's always mentioned first. Right? And then there's Andronicus and Junia, and Junia, under a different name, or another possible name, gets some attention in the book. But they're said to be not just Uh, fellow prisoners, right? So they've been involved in proclaiming the good news about Jesus and have suffered in the same ways that Paul has. But they're said to be relatives of Paul's and also to have been in Christ before Paul was. So Paul had relatives in this movement while he was persecuting it. And that's a detail that I think often has not been explored sufficiently. So just
0: getting back to the book a little bit more uh i was really fascinated about uh the chapter on the serial, serial phoenician woman and the way you characterize it is that uh this this is the one figure that best jesus that jesus able that jesus actually like loses an argument to uh could you please i guess characterize uh that scenario
1: Yeah. So that's the story that is kind of the go-to story when people talk about Jesus learning from women. They don't talk a lot about Jesus learning from women because other than that one story and the obvious example of his mother, they may not think of other stories in the same way. But this is one where Jesus' mind seems to be changed and seems to be changed By this woman, giving him a smart comeback, answer, in response to something that I think we have to acknowledge, uh, however one wants to interpret, however much one wants to sort of protect Jesus's reputation from from any, any aspersions or things like that. Jesus insulted this woman, right? When you say that the children's food should not be given to dogs, and what you're referring to is your own people getting the benefit of his healing activity and other people, and in particular people who were essentially Canaanites, right? And so the historic um, opponents of the Israelites from the moment they, they got to the promised land. Even if you want to say that it's, you know, well, these are cute puppy dogs or something like that. If you are contrasting human beings and putting some people in that category and calling others animals of any sort however cute and cuddly you are making an insult and that often you know troubles people right who struggle to do justice to the thing that my book is really trying to explore through this lens which is the humanity of jesus right which even the historic orthodox creeds affirm but in practice, people have found it very difficult to do justice to that. And so this woman comes up with a clever comeback. And I think it's clever on multiple levels, right? Um, one thing that we discover, right there, they found dog cemeteries in the regions of Phoenicia And so these people liked their dogs and we're not sure exactly what their status was, but uh, dogs clearly were valued there because we have these burial sites, which is interesting. And so, this woman sees that maybe Jesus is poking fun at her, at her culture, and you know, sort of mocking and insulting. And she comes up with this comeback that essentially says, you know, even the dogs under the table get the scraps that fall, right? They get the crumbs that fall when the children are eating. And all she's asking for is a scrap, right? She just happens to be there. She's found out that Jesus is there. She knows even before she speaks to him that she's not the focus, her people are not the focus of what he's doing. She's just there to get a little bit of sort of side benefit from what he's doing for his own people and focused on his own people. And if he withholds that, right, it's like being somebody who actually makes sure that even though there are hungry dogs under the table, that no scrap of food falls to them, right? And that's not... That's not just give, prioritizing the children. That's cruelty to the animals, right? And so she says, even the dogs get to eat, right? And if you're the implication is, if you withhold this, that's that's a form of cruelty. And of course, in this case, it's not cruel, just cruelty to an animal; it's cruelty to a fellow human being. Not that technically human beings aren't don't fall into the category of animals, but anyway, it's a very clever comeback. And I think Jesus was impressed, right? Like literally impressed. I think. The long-term impact of it can be seen in how Jesus views non-Jews going forward. But even immediately, the story says that he changes his mind. He heals the woman's daughter, having not been inclined to do so earlier on. And so that's why I said it's the go-to example of, of Jesus learning from a woman. Because I think it's not just that she changed his mind, it's that his view of what People outside of his own people group are capable of, in terms of, of faith, in terms of love and care for others, really is changed by this encounter.
0: And is it true that this wasn't just any non Jewish person? This was a person from Syria, Phoenicia, which, if you can correct me if I'm wrong, had background. With the Canaanites, which was a sworn enemy of the Jewish people, going back to the early parts of the Torah, so they had political, uh, uh, p- political history with each other.
1: Yes, absolutely. So on the one hand, really, Phoenicia is not a distinct region, you know, except for maybe some geographical convenience, people come up with this term. But it's it's these are just some of the more powerful Canaanite city-states and the ones that actually were involved in, in seafaring and so actually do spread their culture around the Mediterranean in important ways as well. And so Israel is never trying to encompass that, right? And so it's not all of what could be called Canaan and Canaanite society. And so Israel comes into existence whenever and however it does sort of to the south of that. But then you have stories like the marriage, right, of Ahab to a Phoenician princess, right, um, usually translated into English as Jezebel. And she comes with, not just with her own God, but as a devout worshiper of her own God, Baal. And... There's this famous these famous stories of Elijah the prophet uh, standing up to that and trying to prevent this worship from catching on among his own people and things of that sort. So between the Canaanites in the stories of you know, Exodus and conquest and Joshua and things like that, and these stories from the time of the monarchy of uh, royal marriage and influence of the culture later on, there, there's there's a lot of animosity there, right? And that is indeed the backdrop to this story, whether as you know one gospel puts it she's Syrophoenician, Phoenician, or as another gospel puts it she's Canaanite it's really two different ways of saying the same thing
0: and i guess just to zoom out a little bit uh, what was the position of women in the Le- in the levant and did it differ
1: from rural and urban areas Yeah, so I think there there's a tendency to generalize, and generalizations are inevitable, but they're also fraught with uh, risks and perils of not just misunderstanding, but misunderstanding in ways that can influence how we think about things even today. Right. So on the one hand, you'll sometimes see interpreters of these stories about Jesus who will use the patriarchal culture of the time as a way of making that the negative foil to Jesus as entirely positive in his view of women and things of that sort. And when the focus is narrower on the Jewish context of Jesus, sometimes what's said actually comes across as anti-Semitic. right? So you get these uh, negative portrayals, almost particularly of Judaism. And a lot of scholarly work has been done that has shown that women sometimes played leading roles in a Jewish context, Right. And so the thing that's often missed is that even in a patriarchal context, that doesn't mean that all women are oppressed equally and in the same way. right? It means that there are disadvantages. right? Just as the fact that there are successful uh, black people in a particular society doesn't mean that there isn't racism. right? The fact that there are successful women doesn't mean that there isn't sexism. Uh, it doesn't mean that there's full gender equality, right? You can have some really, really successful businesswomen and some very wealthy businesswomen, and it doesn't mean that across the board, women are paid equally. It doesn't mean that employers do not still sometimes choose even subconsciously on the basis of gender and things like that. And so in... Jesus' time, the same was true, not in exactly the same way as our context, but in its own way, right? And so there were women, right, women in the upper echelons of the elite of society, royal women who could be extremely influential and wealthy and have lots of opportunities. If you were someone whose spouse died and you had no male children, if you were a woman in that situation and you were not wealthy, then your prospects were much worse than if you were a man in that situation, right? And so the situations varied. And one of the things that I think this book helped me to do was not just to talk about that in a way that hopefully helps readers of the Bible and people interested in ancient history more generally to understand that, but the individual stories about women include at least one woman who seems to be fairly, you know, fairly elite uh, connected with, you know, at least married into the the sort of the, the wider household of, of Herod. And you have the very poor, right? And you have people who seem to own their home, even if it's not clear who the head of household is and things like that. And so there's variety. And oftentimes when you get these, these soundbite things and sermons or in uh, popular presentations, that nuance and that diversity can can get lost, and so I think that those are the things that I think are most important to note, and they help us to think about our own context as well, right? Because one reaction to reading ancient literature or, or literature from from another context where uh, there may be more extensive patriarchy, there may be greater restrictions on women in at least certain regards. One response that's very common is to say, well, thank goodness, I don't live in that time, or I don't live in that place, and to just think positively about one's own context. And yet, in our own context, there are inequities and issues that uh, people looking back with the kind of hindsight that we can bring to ancient societies, or to different societies, uh, may judge us for just as harshly as we are sometimes inclined to judge ancient people.
0: So I guess uh, my next question is, what do you hope that this work opens up in terms of the study of early Christianity?
1: Yeah, well, thank you. I hope that the book will have an influence both on how people think about the implications of early Christian literature for topics like women in ministry and things like that, gender equity in marriage and in society. I also hope it will lead people to think differently about Jesus. One of the reactions that I anticipated, and to a large extent I, I sidestepped getting into some of these things because they are just full of landmines, theological landmines for people who are, who are concerned about these things and getting their doctrines about Jesus right. But one reaction that you get just to the title of the book, and I've had people say that just based on the title alone, is Jesus couldn't have learned anything from women or from anyone. He was God. And that is, in fact, a denial of the classic Orthodox position, right? And I'm not saying that you know, I'm not advocating as you know, as far as historical research is concerned that one needs to be orthodox and to subscribe to creeds, but most of the people who are trying to defend Jesus from people who view him in other ways that they find unacceptable think of themselves as defending orthodoxy. And yet what was defined as orthodoxy was that Jesus is fully human as well as fully divine. And whether it's possible to say those two things at the same time is a difficulty that Christian theologians have wrestled with ever since they've they first tried to formulate it in those terms. But if you say that Jesus didn't learn even from his mother, you are denying he was a human being. And while very few Christians in our time and very few thinkers in our time would go there in theory, in practice they essentially seem to be happy to say something along those lines. And so I'm hoping that by highlighting the obviousness that if Jesus was human, he learned from his mother, by looking at the evidence that Jesus learned from other women as well, by highlighting that the Gospel of Luke explicitly tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom, which means he learned, it will actually lead people to think differently about Jesus. Not necessarily in ways that are incompatible with historic orthodoxy, if that's important to them, but in ways that I hope will get them to see that they've taken two things that historically Christians have said about Jesus and allowed one of them this idea of him as as divine or as you know one through whom we encounter the divine and allowed that to overshadow his humanity to the point that it's denied in practice even when it's not denied in theory and i think that leads to or reinforces some very negative views of 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 human existence and of what it means to be human among other things and so has uh, has real Implications of a practical sort, and not just uh, doesn't just affect what you might put in a creed or a, a doctrinal statement.
0: So I think that's all the time we have for today. But before we go, I would, James, are you working on anything in the future? Uh, any future
1: projects? Yes. So in in one interview I did about the book, "What Jesus Learned from Women." The the interviewer asked me at the end, so what's next? What Jesus learned from men? And I I had to laugh because the next project that I was hoping to move on to once I finished a few things that were already in process was to look at the figure of John the Baptist. And so I'm actually in the early stages of writing a book or maybe two on John the Baptist as a historical figure. And The reason I say maybe, too, is that I'm hoping to do something a little different this time. Um, And that's to do all the really academic, detailed studies of specific stories and sayings and evidence and questions in a a very academic book for an academic audience and give my fellow academics all that they'd want in terms of argument. And then to do essentially a biography of John the Baptist, and there hasn't really been one of those in any meaningful sense, right? There have been some really, really great and important books on John the Baptist, but nothing that I'd really consider a, a biography because we have such little evidence to go on. But I think we have more to go on than we sometimes realize. And it's our exclusion of certain sources on the one hand and our haste to get to Jesus and the, thus our the, the the rapidity with which we breeze past John the Baptist leads us to miss some of the clues that are there. So my next big project, uh, which I'm in the early stages of working on at this point, is is about John the Baptist. And so continuing to look at uh, those who were around and who may have influenced Jesus.
0: Well, thank you so much for
1: the interview. And uh, until next time. Yeah, thank you so much, David. It's been wonderful talking with you.